Today, we are talking about the persecuted church, the persecuted church, Smyrna. And uh, so I'm going to pray and then we'll get started here. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us for your son's sake. Amen. Amen. I uh, started with that last time I preached and felt like the Lord was like, no, keep that in there. Keep that in there. We want, we want to do that again. Uh, it just really centers our heart and our minds before the Lord, right? Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And this isn't just like, you know, I want money or something like that, but it's, you know, where I need you in, to intervene in my life, where I need encouragement, where I need challenging, where I need instructing, give us that. And then what we are not, uh, spiritually, right, as spiritual beings, what we are not, make us for your son's sake, right? This is all for Jesus' sake. Amen. So uh, we're going to read the scripture. So stand up, please. And we're going to do the sit, stand, sit, stand thing. You didn't think you came into Catholic Church today? No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> um, no, we're going we're gonna to stand right now. I'll tell you when to sit, okay? All right, Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And, the angel, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Know your works, tribulation. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. That's Revelation 2, 8 through 11. You can take your seats. So we are going through these seven churches one by one in Revelation 2 and 3. And so we're going to put a map up here. We've showed this the last couple weeks. Last week we were in Ephesus. This week we're in Smyrna right here. And so uh, it's kind of a port city. I'm going to read a little bit about this church as we display an image of what the, the city most likely looked like. So beautiful place. And uh, so Smyrna, it's in modern day Izmir, which is in Turkey. Uh, Smyrna was a wealthy port town. Uh, it was impressive architecturally. It was a city of great beauty. It was famous for its delicious wine, and it was home to the Greek poet Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Although it possessed great beauty and splendor, it was also home to great spiritual darkness. With worship of all kinds of pagan deities, they even worshipped the Roman Empire itself and had a temple to it. Journey through the Bible tells us that when you're walking through the city, one would see an Ephesian gate... You would see a gymnasium near the harbor, a stadium on the west side, a theater holding about 20,000 located on the northwest mountain slope, temples to Zeus, including a large altar, temples to Cybele, the mother goddess near the harbor, temples to Aphrodite, Dionysus, and the emperors of Rome. And then you had 
the harbor right there. You had the library, a massive agora with a bima, which is basically just a big amphitheater. And then on the west side, you had a big public hall. Uh, or sorry, on the north, you had a big public hall. So this city, beautiful spot right on the ocean, but it was a city that was destroyed in 177 AD by a massive earthquake. And it was rebuilt with the aid of Marcus Aurelius, who decided not to take any taxes from the city for 10 years to allow it to be rebuilt. Uh, do I have any uh, Gladiator fans in the, in the building? The movie Gladiator? Yeah? Great movie. Marcus Aurelius was the emperor um, of Rome at the beginning of the movie. You remember that? And uh, one of the things that the movie skips over, though, is that one of the uses of the Colosseum and venues like it across the Roman Empire was that it was used to persecute Christians. Um, but do you guys remember when Hollywood used to make, like, good movies? Remember that? I, mean, I know it's been a while. I mean, I haven't been to the movies to see a movie in so long because everyone is like a live-action remake of this or, you know, it's like, can, you, can we get some creativity, something good out there? It's a lot to ask for, I know. Anyway, so we can take that image down. It's already down. Okay. So uh, Wolvord wrote, and, and Pastor Steve mentioned this last week, but uh, he wrote this, this quote, Since the seven letters of Revelation 2 and 3 are written to all Christian churches at all times in all places, it is regrettable that these messages of encouragement, rebuke, and warning are not more carefully studied by the modern-day Christians. And this is true, right? We all know people in our lives who avoid the book of Revelation altogether because it's just too complicated. It's too much to get your head around. And maybe there are people here today that, that have that thought. But the reality is that these letters to these churches are no different than the epistles that were written in, in other spots in the New Testament, right? They're, they're letters written to churches to specific churches in that time, but that we can gain spiritual insight and wisdom into by reading them. So these seven churches, these letters to these seven churches are the same. We can look at them just like we would any other letter that was written to a church in the New Testament. Okay? Amen. Cool. So the previous church, Ephesus, that, that church was praised for their works, but they needed to return to their first love of Jesus. Um, we talked about that last week, but Smyrna... They were faithful to their first love, but they had many trials coming. And that's the context of this, uh, this letter. It's going to be talking about the trials that are coming for this church. So with these seven churches, Jesus reveals something about himself to challenge or encourage the church that he's writing to at the beginning of each address to the churches. So he, he gives them something to hang on to about himself, some thing about his character. And there's, we know that there's a lot of different aspects to God. There's a lot of different character traits of God, right? There's a lot of different things that Jesus could have highlighted about himself for this church who was about to experience heavy persecution. So why does he choose to reveal this certain thing about himself? What encouragement is he sending them when they're about to face persecutions and trials? What does Jesus say about himself to these people? What does he give them to hang on to? Well, he says, I'm the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I'm the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Why is this aspect of his character the one he chose to tell them about at the beginning of this passage? He's the beginning and the end. Well, I think one of the reasons why he gives them this, I'm the beginning and the end 
um, aspect of his character is, I think he's saying, people will try to bring an end to you, but I'm the beginning and the end. I will declare when your end is. I declared when your beginning is. And so I'm over all of that. He was there at the beginning. He'll be there at the end. He's above all things. He's over all things. It's a picture of his greatness and his vastness and his power over all things, right? I'm the beginning and the end. This, this verse I'm going to share, I love this verse because when things feel really big in life, it's one of those verses that I can always come back to to get a little bit of perspective. So it's Isaiah 40, 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Measured heavens with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance. So if you go to Pismo Beach and look out at the oceans and you're just amazed at how huge it is, you can just see God holding all of the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand, right? And doesn't that just make your problems feel smaller, right? Doesn't that just make you feel at ease? He's saying, I've been there, I see it all, um, and I, can, I will continue to see it all throughout time. And then he says, who was dead and came to life. I was dead and I came to life. I think this is why, uh, there's a couple different theories on why he pulls this out. And there's one that some people say, some people say that he's drawing this comparison to himself and the city he was writing to, right? The city of Smyrna, it was destroyed in this massive earthquake, and then it was rebuilt and brought back to life, as it were. Um, and so they're saying, oh, well, it's something they could relate to, right? It was something in their lives they could relate to. I think that's okay, but I think this is the bigger reason why he said it. I think he's giving them solace that he died and had come back to life, right? He died and came back to life. Though they may die, they can trust that they'll be raised to life in Christ just like he was. He's not asking them to suffer anything. He didn't suffer himself. Romans 6, 5 for if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus had tasted the sting of death and he had defeated it, right? He, he was raised to life so that we could be raised to life as well. That's the hope that we have. That's the basics of the gospel, right? Revelation 2.9, it continues, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but you are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus is saying he knows and he sees their difficulty. And this is a really beautiful thing, right? This is an amazing thing that we can hang on to as believers, is that Jesus sees us, he knows us in our difficulty. We've been going through this amazing book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, as a staff together, and it's been really sweet. And one of the, it's, so basically it's a shepherd who spent his whole career shepherding and now he's looking at Psalm 23 and giving insight from a shepherd's perspective on what was actually meant by that uh, Psalm by David. And it's really interesting because one of the chapters is focusing on how we are, we are sheep and uh, there's constantly predators that are attacking us and they may pick off a sheep from the outside um, and the sheep are so afraid at nighttime because of the absence of the shepherd because they're afraid that they might get picked off. They might get taken out by a wolf here or there. And 
What's so encouraging about it is he draws this comparison about how the presence of the shepherd makes all the difference. It brings so much peace to the sheep as a flock when their shepherd is present that they know, okay, my shepherd is here. No matter what's going on around, I've got peace because Jesus is right here in the midst of it. Doesn't that just bring you peace? When you're going through hard stuff, it's not like Jesus is far off. He sees, he knows the difficulty and he's right there in your midst. In the church in Smyrna, we see, we see a church that's suffering extreme poverty and persecution. They had lost jobs. They had lost status. They had lost so many things in their lives because of the persecution of the gospel. They were poor because they were Christians. They weren't just like in the inner city, poor part of town, and they all were a part of a church, and so they're just poor Christians, right? No, they were poor because they were Christians. So they're surrounded by this affluent city and this Christian church. All of them are in poverty, right? This word, it's not just poor. It's actually that they were destitute. They were destitute. They, they did not have their, all their needs met. They underwent economic persecution. And this is a really common form of persecution. If you've traveled abroad or anything like that, this is a really common form of persecution. And I shared this before, but um, I had the opportunity to go to Azerbaijan it's a country between Iran and Russia. And so we went deep into the mountains there and visited a Christian church. And um, throughout the service, I found out that every person who was in attendance, about 15 people, had been uh, ostracized from their families and communities. They had been beaten and imprisoned for their faith multiple times. Um, they had lost their jobs. They, they were just totally persecuted for their faith. They weren't simply looked down on by their faith, right? They lost everything for their faith. They took it quite seriously when Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So he also sees the blasphemy of those who call themselves Jews, but are not, right? We see the, it's called blasphemy. My first thought was, why is it blasphemy if they're calling themselves Jews, but they're not like that? You know, like that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and then my second thought was, why would they be calling themselves Jews if they're not? Um, Jews have been hated across all of human history. Why would you want to be called a Jew if you're not? Um, and the more I studied, I realized that they were Jews by heritage and by blood, but Jesus did not consider them to be Jews because uh, he didn't consider them to be the people of God. They, they didn't confess Jesus as Messiah, and they were not faithful to their God. They were called a synagogue of Satan because of their unfaithfulness and because of their poor treatment of Christians. So that's the blasphemy. They're not blaspheming, blaspheming because they are calling themselves Jews. They're blaspheming because of their, um, they are worshiping Caesar as God. And in that time, in the Roman Empire, in that time, everyone had to worship Caesar as God. That was like, everybody had to do it. And Smyrna had its many temples to the different gods, right? But they also had temples to worship the dead Caesars, and they had a, a temple to the Roman Empire itself. And the Jews had cut a deal with the emperor saying, well, you know, we can't really say out loud or bow the knee to Caesar, but we will light this incense and that's like our way of paying homage to the, uh, to the Caesar and saying G Caesar is Lord without actually saying it out loud. So they thought they had found this loophole, right? 
They thought that they, you know, I'll burn this incense instead of actually saying it out loud. That way, God's not mad at me, Caesar's not mad at me, and I'm okay right in the middle, right? They thought they had found this loophole. Um, but, you know, all throughout this, the Jews had that luxury of, well, the luxury, but uh, they, they had forced Christians to acknowledge Caesar as God and to worship him. So the Jews were um, a synagogue of Satan, not only because of their participation in the worship of Caesar, but also forsaking God in that process and then um, participating in the persecution of the Christians. So <clears throat> with the... Um, the burning of the incense was their form of worship at the altar, right? They were declaring him to be God by burning the incense. Um, and the Jews in this time, they were probably thinking, well, I'm just doing what I have to do, right? I'm just doing what I have to do to get by. At least I'm not saying it out loud, or at least I'm not actually bowing the knee physically. Um, so I'm going to ask everyone to, uh, if you like donuts, raise your left hand. You like donuts? Like them? Yes? Good. Cool. Uh, that was a great exercise. Wow. So, um, <laughs> so if you raised your, your left hand, that means you're consenting and saying, yes, I like donuts, right? So in the same way, if Caesar is saying, hey, just light this incense to claim me as God, like you don't actually have to say it, but just light the incense as your act of worship to me and they do it, they may as well be bowing down right? They may as well be worshiping with their mouths. It doesn't matter what the confirming act is. That's the bottom line. It doesn't matter what the confirming act is. They were doing the confirming act and they were worshiping him as God. Revelation 2.10 continues, do not fear any of these things which you're about to suffer. This can also be translated more, a little more accurately is stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. They were afraid of the persecution they were experiencing. They weren't unlike us, right? They were afraid of the persecution they were experiencing. And they were experiencing persecution, obviously, from the Romans, we saw that, but also from the Jews who were looking down on them. And uh, Jesus encourages them not to fear the things that will happen to them. Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear people, fear God. Amen. Stop being afraid of what man can do to you. Revelation 2.10 continues, Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's a lot of speculation about what this 10 days is, and nobody's really firm on it. So uh, some people think, oh, it's 10, really 10 years. Some people think it must have been significant, like 10 days of significant persecution, but we're not really sure. So that's as far as I'm going to go with that, okay? So <clears throat> um, the church in Smyrna, they're being warned about more persecution coming their way. And uh, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat this, right? He doesn't give them empty platitudes to hang on to. The reality is that that's not required when people are facing death. God encourages them to stop being afraid. And then he describes what will happen to them. He says, some will be thrown into prison and tested. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He sets the prize before them, right? The crown of life. He sets it before them. He will bestow on them the crown 
of life. The value of the crown of life far outweighs anything we face this side of heaven. So right now, we in this country, we don't really experience persecution, right? For our faith in Jesus, we don't really experience much of that. We may experience some judgment or some condescending tones, but not persecution, really. But we may come into a time where we do experience persecution. As our worldview comes into greater and greater conflict with the worldview of the culture around us, it very well may be that we might be moving into a time of hostility towards Christians. Christians, the reality is that Christians have been persecuted across the world since the gospel has been preached. Throughout all time, persecution throughout Christian history has been the rule, not the exception. Do you realize you're living in the exception right now? But at any moment, that could change, right? So Jesus communicated what his disciples should expect in Matthew 10, 16 through 24. Let's read it together. Behold, uh, well, you don't have to say it out loud, okay? I'm going to read it. You can listen, okay? Cool. Thanks. All right. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in the hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in the city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Isn't that interesting? A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. We should expect persecution. We shouldn't expect being above Jesus in this way. Listen, it's great that we haven't experienced significant persecution in our country as Christians in today's day and age, but do not be surprised if it's coming. There are multiple crowns mentioned in the Bible. And this one, the crown of life, is given to those who endure trials. James 1 also talks about this. The crown of life is mentioned. But it's for those who endure to the end through trials and persecutions and will receive eternal life. Revelation 2.11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So what is the second death? Well, we know in Revelation 20 and 21, the second death is hell and eternal judgment in the lake of fire. Jesus promises the Christians at Smyrna that if they overcome, if you'll overcome, you will not experience hell. You won't be hurt by it. What does this mean to overcome in Revelation 2.11? Well, I think it's clear. It means remaining faithful to the end. Remaining faithful to the end. John 16.33, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We can overcome only because Jesus has overcome. Polycarp, who was a pastor of the church in Smyrna, was a follower of the Apostle John. 
And uh, we're fortunate to have the story of his persecution. And I'm going to read it today, right now. The year after Polycarp returned from Rome, a great persecution came upon the Christians of Smyrna. His congregation urged them to leave the city until the threat blew over. So believing that God wanted him to be around a few more years, Polycarp left the city and hid out on a farm belonging to some Christian friends. One day on the farm, as he prayed in his room, Polycarp had a vision of his pillow engulfed in flames. He knew what God said to him and calmly told his companions, I see that I must be burnt at the stake. Meanwhile, the chief of police issued a warrant for his arrest. They seized one of Polycarp's servants and tortured him until he had told them where his master was. Towards evening, the police chief and a band of soldiers came to the old farmhouse. When the soldiers found him, they were embarrassed to see that they had come to arrest such an old, frail man. They reluctantly put him on a donkey and walked him back to the city of Smyrna. On the way to the city, the police chief and other uh, government officials tried to persuade Polycarp to offer a pinch of incense before a statue of Caesar and simply say, Caesar is Lord. That's all he had to do, and he would have been off the hook. They pleaded with him to do it and escaped the dreadful penalties. At first, Polycarp was silent, and then he calmly gave his firm answer, no. The police chief was now angry. Annoyed with the old man, he pushed uh, him out of his carriage and onto the hard ground. Polycarp, bruised but resolute, got up and walked the rest of the way to the arena. The horrid games at the arena had begun in earnest and large, bloodthirsty mob gathered to see Christians tortured and killed. One Christian named Quintus boldly proclaimed himself a follower of Jesus and said he was willing to be martyred. But when he saw the vicious animals in the arena, he lost courage and agreed to burn the pinch of incense to Caesar as Lord. Another young man named Germanicus didn't back down. He marched out and faced the lions and died an agonizing death for his Lord Jesus. Ten other Christians gave their lives that day and the mob was unsatisfied. They cried out, away with the atheists who do not worship our gods. To them, Christians were atheists because they did not, did not recognize the traditional gods of Rome and Greece. Finally, the crowd started chanting, bring out Polycarp. When Polycarp brought his tired body into the arena, he and the other Christians heard a voice from heaven. It said, be strong, Polycarp, play the man. As he stood before the proconsul, they tried one more time to get him to renounce Jesus. The proconsul told Polycarp to agree with the crowd and shout out, away with the atheists. See, they make it easier and easier each time. Just say away with the atheists now. You don't have to pinch, do the pinch of incense. Polycarp looked sternly at the bloodthirsty mob and waved his hand toward them and said, away with those atheists. The proconsul persisted, take the oath and revile Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp answered, for 86 years I have served Jesus. How dare I revile my king? The proconsul finally gave up and announced to the crowd the, time, the crime of the accused. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. The crowd shouted, let the lions loose. But the animals had already been put away. The crowd then demanded that Polycarp be burnt. 
The old man remembered the dream about the burning pillow and took courage in God. He said to his executioners, It is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come, do your will. They arranged a great pile of wood and set up a pole in the middle, and they tied Polycarp to the pole. Bless you. They arranged a great pile of wood and set up a pole in the middle, and as they tied Polycarp to the pole, he prayed, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. After he prayed and gave thanks to God, they set the wood ablaze. A great wall of flame shot up to the sky, but it never touched Polycarp. He set a, God set a hedge of protection between him and the fire. Seeing that he would not be burned, the executioner, in a furious rage, stabbed the old man with a long spear. Immediately, streams of blood gushed from his body and seemed to extinguish the fire. When this happened, a witness saw, uh, said they saw a dove fly up from the smoke and into heaven. At that very moment, a church leader in Rome named Arrhenius said he heard God say to him, Polycarp is dead. God called his servant home. Don't be surprised if we experience persecution here one day. Persecution throughout Christian history has been the norm and not the exception. I pray that we all remain faithful to the end, each and every one of us. I think of this section in scripture that we're talking about today, the most powerful one is, is verse 9. Jesus says that he knows their works, their tribulation, and their poverty. And then it says these four words that flip this whole passage on its head. You may be reading this and, be, and you might be thinking, wow, poor Smyrna. They are poor, they're persecuted and full of trials. Everyone around them is well off and prospering. And they're being warned that they're about to be killed for their faith. Can't they catch a break? <laughs> but then you read these next four words that change everything. But you are rich. But you are rich. Jesus, do you see who you're talking to? These people are the poorest of the poor. They've lost everything on account of the gospel. And on top of that, these people will soon experience even more persecution. How are these people rich? Well, they are rich in Christ. They are rich in Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3-9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, had begotten us to again live a, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, that now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not you, seen you, love, having not seen you, love. Though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, the greatest riches you could ever attain is in the mercy of Jesus Christ. 
the salvation that he offers us. So we should rejoice with joy inexpressible, right? We should be more joyous than the most joyful person who does not have hope in Jesus, right? We should be the most joyful, humble, just grateful, content, peace-filled people in the whole world, right? When I was thinking about this, you know, God's, or Jesus is saying to them, you are rich. And I was thinking to myself, okay, if I had earthly riches, how would that affect the way that I live my life? Okay, so if I woke up tomorrow and I had a billion dollars in my bank account, how would that affect me? How, how would that change me? Well, it would probably provide me some relief, right? Some relief from financial stressors. But that's only, you know, monetary relief, right? How much more peace should we have because we have the salvation for our souls? Like nothing in this world should touch us. That's what I'm saying. Like we need to be so content and peace-filled that people are like, what is happening with you? Do you see what's going on in the world? And we can say, I'm rich. I'm rich in Christ. No matter what's happening in my world around me, no matter what hardships I might be enduring, no matter what persecution we may face one day, we just remember these four words, but you are rich, right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've counted us as rich, Lord. This, this church that was not rich by any means, by worldly standards, but Lord, they were rich because of their faith in you. And I pray that we would be a rich church as well, that, that puts our full weight of faith in you, God, that we would not rely on ourselves, that we wouldn't look to this world to provide any sort of contentment or peace, but we would look to you alone, Father, and that we might remember in a moment where we might be persecuted sometime in the future, that we would remember this message that you sent us, that we are rich in Christ. Don't worry about the things that are happening here this side of heaven. The crown of life is so much more valuable. So Father, will you just encourage each person? Don't let this message just fall away. But God, in our moments of trial and persecution, God, may we look to you, be strengthened in you. May we look to the examples of men who have gone before us, who stood strong and were faithful until the end. Jesus, we submit our hearts to you. We pray that you will work on us and do a work in us. In your precious name, amen.